Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sans Pants Radio, Australia's happiest podcast network. Hey everyone, welcome to Bookish. I'm George DeMorellis. This is a show we ask you, what's your story and what does it say about you? Today on the show, we have multifaceted individual, not represented by any one thing, who does TV, radio, but he might be most well known for winning Big Brother back in 2012. Benjamin Norris, how you doing, Ben? I'm doing really well. This is really nice. What's really strange and what people won't know is, you know, we're sitting here in your, we can't say that, can we? I think we can, actually. Oh, right. This is work. This is work. Yeah. So. That's right. I'm, I'm here for work. Yeah, I'm sitting here in your apartment, which you've only just moved into. Mm-hmm. And this is so surreal because we're Melbournians and we haven't been allowed to do this. So it's kind of otherworldly. Yeah, it's a bit like, and do you always notice this when you talk to people that you haven't like, because you've only seen the same three people, <laughs> whenever yeah. you meet a new face, you're like just hanging out and just chatting way more than you normally would in a regular interaction. I want to say something now, which is so embarrassing, but this is who I am. I always call the elephant out in the room. And when I, I was so excited about being here that it almost felt like a date. It's not, um, you have different interests to me. Uh, and also I'm married. So that makes <laughs> that, a big that difference. Too, yeah. But like, I was so excited, like it was a date coming in here, but then I also realized how much I was not used to sitting down with someone who I've never met before that I was really nervous when I came in here. Really? Yeah. Okay. What did you- <laughs> like you were going to murder me or yeah, something. Yeah, okay, right. I was going to say, what do you think walking in here? You're like, okay, no, no, this is, I can handle this scenario. <laughs> well, I could tell you were friendly and I'd already listened to two episodes of your podcast, so I kind of knew a certain amount. But you know what it's like. You sort of sometimes build things into something yeah. and then you get nervous. I do know. I do. I did do you notice something? I was being nervous? No, no, I didn't notice that part. You hit it well, almost <laughs> psychopathically well. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, great. But uh, so <laughs> like that, that is uh, you, now you're saying that that does make me think when you first were saying to come on the show and you were calling and trying to be like, I can't pick which book, what time we're going to do this. I'm really thinking this. Yeah. I feel like you think a lot. As a person. I am an overthinker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And I think think that's a good thing, actually, because the work that we do, I think overthinking and putting a lot of pressure on yourself is almost the respect of the work that we do. And I think if you're not overthinking stuff when we are in this line of work, then we're not being respectful of the craft, you know? I mean, you got to love justifying your own uh, <laughs> mental habits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, it's right, guys. The place is, needs to be tidy. Okay, I'm not OCD. <laughs> the place needs to be tidy. Um, that's- well, it doesn't need to be tidy. And to be honest, for everyone that's listening, it's not really that tidy, to be honest with you. Okay, just take it easy, <laughs> all right? It's, okay, I just moved in and it, look, there's not much mess. I thought I, I do need... <laughs> Let's not go into that. Although, yeah, you know what? Let's put this on the podcast because I do want this recorded. How delicious is my new water purifier? No one can see this. It's the best water I've ever had. Thank you. Right? There you go. It's so good. <laughs> well, but- you know, it's interesting to be able to sit down and have this sort of a conversation. And I think overthinking is a great part of uh, being a good storyteller as well. So anyway. Well, yeah, you say that. But see, now I'm going to straight away and come back against everything of that in a way because (laughs) overthinking is definitely one way but then you got the other side which is the person who is completely not overthinking and just completely in the moment and just experiencing the moment as it is which is another side of the kind of thing that works in our field as well you could say so that that's the other complete opposite end of the spectrum i think this is probably where about 
being an overthinker for me doing this sort of work is normally the overthinking leads up until the process. Mm. But then once you're there, you have to let it be natural. And I guess that's sort of the same thing with doing something like Big Brother. You know, a lot of people talk to me about strategy and whether or not I used a strategy. And the one strategy that I did rely on in that show was always being authentic. And I can tell you that that lead up into going into that house, I overthought everything. But then for the, I think it was 87 days that I lived inside there, I wasn't overthinking as much. I was giving myself up to the moment. So then even now sitting here having this conversation, now the podcast has started, that's kind of where I've, I've let it all go. That yeah. makes any sense? Okay. Yeah, that does, that, so that, that does can, sound good. Yeah. This now, I'm more relaxed now that we're recording than I was sitting around your place waiting for it to start. If that makes sense. <laughs> well, sense. we should have started recording sooner. <laughs> I'm sorry for keeping for it that long. You're just, you're just stressing out this whole time. It's like, turn the goddamn mic on. That's interesting. That, that, that's like the classic meditation thing, like as in where it's yeah. like, you know, be in the moment, but then also step out of it and then plan well and then get back into the moment and sit there. Because like, I just think of like even stand-up comedy. You might yeah. write, 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 write. And then as soon as you get up on stage, it's like now it's just whatever you're going to do up there. How about when, like, so this is in regards to our work we're talking now in terms yeah. of like planning all that. But what about in general life? Do you feel like you kick back or do you feel like you don't like plans changing at the last minute and stuff like that? No one likes plans changing the last minute, but like, is that something? Yeah, well, I don't like to make plans really at all. Like I'm not that much, I'm not good like that. Like my partner gets extremely frustrated with me because I'm not, like I don't like to make plans. He'll ask me about what we're having for dinner while we're having lunch and that infuriates me. Because I need to wait for the, the flavors to settle before I can even think about my dinner. Yeah. But my partner is very successful. He's very good at what he does. And that has a lot to do with planning. Where with me, I think I'd be much more successful. I'd probably be successful, <laughs> to be honest with you, had I been able to be a little bit more of a planner. But see, the contrast here is that it's more about, for me, getting myself into a particular mindset that I think I need to be in before I do something like this, mm -hmm. which is kind of an a silly thing to be. But at the same time, I think it's a creative thing. I think if you're a creative and that's what we are, I think that we all have our little tricks about how we want to feel leading into doing something. Mm. You know, we all put that pressure on. I mean, comedians, to be honest with you, I could talk to you about you. I'd be more interested talking to you than talking <laughs> about myself. But I think that comedians are so fascinating to me because the way in which different comedians build their Shows, I think, is fascinating. I've got friends that are comedians that write it all out. Uh, I've got comedians that will do what they'll do it to a wall, you know, like they'll prepare and vocalize it to the wall at home, you know, many times over. But I always think the preparation for anybody doing comedy is so in interesting. Mm. And it just varies again, completely person to person, how, um, which yeah. way you're going to. I'm used Locked. to interviewing other people, so I know, that's, no, that's all right. you're just going to notice that every time I'm going to try and go back to interviewing. Yeah, you. no, that's. <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to unpack that in terms of like the way you talk about the uh, being a creative world. So you're trying to get yourself in that right mindset, which I totally 100% agree mm. on, and people don't realize how much like of I think, but I think that actually applies to all life. Like it's weird how much controlling your own mindset going into something, which is really just controlling your emotional state, priming it in different circumstances, mm. is like a good way to be basically. So do you treat all life like that a little bit or is it just the creative stuff where you're like, I want to get myself in the right mindset for this moment right now or do you do that with other things as well? I think it has a lot to do with my insecurity to be perfectly honest with you and I know that we talked about maybe this being a therapy session and I'm like, how much do I have to pay you afterwards? But what people probably don't know about me is I'm way more insecure than people would realize and so when people quite often would hear me on shows or podcasts or presenting and radio is that I have this weird thing where I come across sounding really confident, where in actual fact I'm not. Like I'm probably the most insecure person that most people would ever meet. But I'm just trying to – I think my magic with how I have been relatable to people is by just being a little bit um, authentic, I guess, you know, just being – yeah. Well, it's interesting you're saying that at the same time as saying I'm insecure, but I'm actually sounding really confident, but I'm actually being really authentic at the same time. You know what I mean? Which sounds like yeah. contrast, but I actually get it because I get the same thing, like as in where I sound like I'm super confident strutting yeah. around, whatever, but then like actually I've got yeah, insane overthinking. Exactly. So like constantly second guessing every single thing that goes through my head well, and all that. it's funny. My mum's in this relationship that, you know, she's been in uh, since my stepfather had passed away and, um, you know, she's in this new relationship. So he doesn't really know me that well. 
and he watches me on the Ben Robin Robbo show and has said, wow, he's a really confident person. And my mum's had to, mum goes, no, she's like, he's not like, um, and I'm really not like, I'm really not a confident person. But the interesting thing about it is when it's magic time, when I'm getting the creative juices flowing, I'm just being, I'm just trying to be real, I guess. Yeah. That makes any I love sense. It. When it's magic time, baby, <laughs> Ben brings it. Am I making any sense? I, <laughs> no, I it don't is. know. Is that something like, do you reckon you developed the ability to sound confident when presenting stuff? Or do you reckon that's just kind of part of feeling the energy when you get up and that's always been a part of you? Like, has those two sides kind of always been there? Did one you consciously developed? I think it came down to, it probably goes back to my teenage years of being quite confident. And I think as kids, we are really confident. But then once my sexuality became so prevalent to other people, not to me, I didn't work out my sexuality until I was 21. But for most people who met me through my early teens, they would understand my sexuality before I did. And so then because people would at school say faggot or really defamatory things to me at school and and it would upset me, I worked out ways to try and mask that and come across as really confident. I didn't want to let people know that the fact that they knew about my sexuality and wanted to mock me for it was hurting me. So I started just really over protect, like, you know, just didn't want them to see that. So I built this wall. Oh, so you did. So it was a conscious decision in that sense. Right, like, is in it? I don't it was think something- anything's conscious like that when you're a teenager. I think we're all failing. Like, I think we're all trying to go. I mean, all the hormones are going through us. Mm. We're trying to work out who we are. And I think for me, the weirdest thing about no- how other people knowing my sexuality before I did was that I didn't want people to know that was true. So then, as I did work out my sexuality, and I had to then admit to the fact that I was gay, it was a much further process for me because I didn't. You made what? all those bullies were right. I made it. Yeah, I made them right, you know. <laughs> and then if I was that. right. But that's like, yeah, that's but such if a I weird, was right, complex thing. I should yeah. have owned it. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. what they wouldn't know is that I didn't know. You know, I wasn't attracted to boys or girls through high school. I wasn't interested. Yeah. yeah. Because my body hadn't evolved to that point. Like I hadn't really understood what I wanted. Oh, so you felt like you were actually a late bloomer as well with this stuff. Oh, I really was. Yeah. I don't think I, I think this is a weird one, but. It was. I say to people, I didn't go through puberty till I was eighteen. But I think realistically, now when I've unpacked that with my brother and my mum, who you know obviously probably know me the best in this world, is that I think it was about seventeen, like early seventeen. So I was really late. Right. Okay. That's a. Uh, that is okay. So first, that is distinct right there because I think of a. Uh, I. Uh, <laughs> to. To overshare as well. Um, mm. One of the things I think a lot of guys will do, especially because I was a late bloomer-ish, but not like that late. And but I uh, went to an all-boys school, so I was just never really uh, as open, yeah. like as in interacting yeah. socially. So like the first girl I saw, I was like seventeen because I had all brothers, so I was very late to the party. <laughs> but I think it's happened with a lot of guys who, when they got insecurity when they're younger, not seeing many girls or whatever. I think a lot of them go through the process because I've talked to some mates who've had the same thought. Where they're like, am I gay? Because <laughs> you're just not interacting with that. And yeah. then you sit there and you think about it and you might get like confused or whatever. And then you're like, but I'm not, like I know what I'm, I don't think so. <laughs> well, now we're going off on a tangent. But I will say to you that I'm starting to believe now that I think sexuality is, we're all kind of fluid to a mm. certain point. I think there's a scale and I think that we all sort of fit on different elements of the scale. I think that gender and sexuality identity is really different. I think that some people I know who are really effeminate are some of the straightest men I know. And also, like, we grew up in this era of, especially for me growing up in the 90s, it was so important to identify yourself as something specific. You know, you're a man or a woman. There's only two options. You know what I mean? Where what I've learned is, and I learned this actually interesting in a very interesting way from doing Big Brother, was that the LGBTI community didn't particularly like me on that show. Really? And that's because they thought that I was, I was a role, like I was trying to present myself as a role model or, or I represented the whole community. And what is I that learned how you from spoke that, or is that just- No, that I felt? never spoke like that. You're like, as the role model. No, I never. <laughs> I never would. I, I mean, I'm not. I as can't. a gay man, let me just put my- <laughs> No, well, but this is the thing. We were so used to that. But what I learned is that there are so many interesting, beautiful and different elements of the LGBTI community, meaning that there's so many stories. I don't reflect the LGBTI community. I would 
would reflect a minuscule of it. I'm, yeah. I want to know about this next, this generation that's happening now, this, this group of people growing up now. They're not from what I was talking about. They're not from a generation of being told it's one or the other. And they demand it. You know, this is a generation of people that'll be like so willing to say, oh, like that they're gay at 12 or 13. You know, like that idea to me blows my mind. Mm. And they'll say that they're gay, but, you know, that they'll wear a dress and, but they'll play football. Like there's just so many opportunities for people these days that's such a different complexity to what I was Yeah, it's going to be weird to see. And these people own it as well. You meet these 12 or 13 year olds that are like, I'm gay. And I'm like, Mate, you don't know. Like, but they do, you know, like how who am I to say how they want to identify? Oh, well, like, um, yes, but also uh obviously it's like don't don't commit to anything back at that age, I'd almost be like, You you can be anything. Yeah. It's like you don't have to put the label on it at that age. That's almost the and my attitude they? is more like you don't need a label at all rather than saying I'm this or that. It's like just be like whatever. Um, almost until maybe a bit older, I guess. Cause the reason <laughs> I'm asking that is because you've got your so to go back to that again, you're saying how you realized for yourself when you were 21 that you were gay. Mm, yeah. So was that a conflicting thing that you were slowly coming to realize or you just didn't unpack that at all? Or like when these guys were being mean to you, because I would just be like from an external environmental reminder rather than just the internal thing, you'd be like, am I? Like, as in, did that not cross your mind at a younger age? Was there a reason you didn't want it to be true? Or was it just something you just didn't? confront it all it has a lot to do with not having proper role models like as in the accessibility of good role models from the lgbti community were absent you know you think about the journey in which i've seen people go on like ellen degeneres you know she really went on a journey throughout my life you know i can definitely remember her not coming out uh because it, she you couldn't as a comedian you yeah. couldn't as a presenter you know i remember Actors now, you know, that back then I remember the journeys that they went on where they wouldn't tell anyone about their sexuality, Mm. you know. So, like, we've gone on a real journey from back then to where we are now. Right. So, so you didn't feel at the time like you had someone like that to look up to to help guide you out of it. No. But if if you did, would you feel like you would have been different? Because that's kind of what I'm trying to get to. Was there a period where you were unsure and you didn't know or was it because you're kind of pitching it like you Without just having, were neutral utterly and then when 21 years old, you're like, actually, you know what? I think I am gay. Like it doesn't – like that's what's interesting here. You seem to be saying I think that it's there was because no- I'm. I think it's because I'm dodging something here and the thing that I'm dodging is that I actually didn't have anyone that I looked up to. It was the opposite and then I actually thought that being gay was disgusting, you know, because the the level of which I was bullied at school – the relationship that I developed about the possibility of being gay was toxic. It was toxic for myself and I was really stubborn and I'm very stubborn with some things. I think I'm stubborn to the point of being unconscious of it that I really rebelled about my sexuality. And how could I? Because I'm so obviously gay, you know. It's well, like, that's kind of, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, so that's what I was trying to get to, yeah. And, you know, the weird thing about still hiding my sexuality or hiding my identity was that I was still connecting to all these little things. Like I, I've worn makeup every day of my life since I was probably 18, 19. Okay. And like you'd think if you were trying to hide your sexuality or you didn't want to stand out that you wouldn't be putting makeup on, you know what I mean? Yeah. But that was also a mask that I was creating for myself, you know? It was a perfection of something that I thought I was trying to hold myself to. That's what I just find so interesting about that because when mm. you say it's like – because like during obviously there's been a, a, from that age till you accepted that part of yourself, like that that like if you're putting up makeup in the mirror, isn't there a part of you that just thinks maybe I I'm might gay. be? Yeah. <laughs> you're the gayest person alive right now, Ben. <laughs> Time to get on board. It's kind of didn't you have that thought? Like as in, or like as in, or is just you buried it really deep and you just didn't want to like let it fest. Like did it fester? Was it like yeah, not that I'm like you don't need to. Yeah. I think it's more the fascination of women was really interesting to me. And it still is today. Like I love women. Like I've, I, I, it's not, but it's not sexual, but my compatibility with women is, is, is real. Like it's a real element to me. I enjoy my friendships with women. And so before I worked out my sexuality and I think it had a lot to do with, you know, the, like the chemicals and my body hadn't settled or evolved, but I just wasn't sexually attracted to either. So I was dating women until I was 21. Right. And I had a 12-month relationship with a woman who was um, like seven years older than me, you know, um, and was sleeping with women. Yeah. yeah. um, One of my friends had said to me at the time, she um, she was like, you know, you've slept with, you know, 
I think she was trying to work out if I was gay, but she was like, you've slept with 16 women. And I think she, what she meant is, for a gay man, that's a lot. <laughs> you know? You're just like, I'm putting on makeup, right? Don't distract me. Well, I wouldn't want them like, to know. Like, I would have been horrified if any of those girls that I dated would have seen me ever put on makeup. You know, like, oh, that, really? they weren't so allowed that was, to So be you involved. were hiding, so you were still, yeah. you put on the makeup, but you were still hiding that. I thought you were saying you were putting on, but you were like, as Not a mask. Not proud about it. No. no. That's so interesting. I wasn't proud about it. I was, I was uncomfortable about it, and I didn't want people to know. So... It's just weird. This, yeah, the brain's a weird thing, isn't it? Because you can be the hide. Oh. You can, you're you're aware, but you're not aware, and you're not sure. Funnily enough, I do think um, my inside mind when I I look out of this body, it's not what I think it is. Like it's very confronting for me to hear my own voice. It's very confronting to see myself on television, and then I choose that as my industry. You it's know still I mean? now. Yeah, I don't like it at all. Really? Yeah. Oh, no, I don't. I After that- all this, time, I get it at the start. No one likes their voice. At the start, but sure, it gets to a point where I was on the phone to a friend of mine um, and said to her today, "I'm thinking about enrolling in a with a dialect coach of of actually going to see a vocal therapist because I I don't like how nasally or how annoying my voice sounds. Like I would love to sound. When this is one of the main reasons I did the podcast with you, I loved listening to your voice, which is what you want with someone who's doing podcasting, right? But I I don't have that connect." So no. do you uh, – I'm just going to go on a wild tangent here. Do you reckon that could relate to maybe some of those – getting called those names when you're younger and you're yeah. associating the voice you have with your sexuality and yeah. be like, I don't want to sound so gay? Like as in I'm, don't, yeah. I'm not saying that in a disparaging way, but could that be something which – A hundred percent. You're dealing with like as in you're treating it like that? I think I probably in my own mind think I can control a lot of the narrative that goes on. Like I think I still believe that I can control how in which I'm going to be interpreted by other people, which is complete fallacy. I can't control that, but I think it's that perfectionism that I have in myself that if I can be this way, if I can sound this way, that I'll be okay without realizing that I'm okay anyway. Yeah. You know, like I don't need to really manicure myself to looking perfect all the time. I don't need to control my voice to sound this p- way that I've created or think it's what it should be. Yeah. You know what I mean? i got to let it all go. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. And you know, when it comes to reality television, this is a really good one. And that is that a lot of reality TV contestants will be on a show and then afterwards they will complain that they were edited badly. And I just think that's not true at all. Because I've done a reality show where I saw what they were really like and then I heard their complaints about how badly they were edited and I quietly thought to myself, that's who you really are. Oh, really? Name names. Name names. <laughs> name names. Um, <laughs> but you're not, yeah. No, I'm, I mean, I don't mind naming I don't names. even know anyone, to be honest. No, you have never watched the show. Have you ever watched an episode <laughs> of Big Brother in your life? No. I, but, uh, it's my, your nightmare, isn't it? <laughs> no, look, I would, I, look you, you give, you're making me sound like some douchey person looks down at No, I can appreciate all that stuff. But uh, actually, a friend of mine was on it as well, Nobby Tanaka. He was on Big Brother 08. Yeah, I know who yeah, that yeah. is, yeah. Yeah, so he was a... Uh, he went to, we grew up together. Well, he's years before me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did audition with him when he got on. All right. I didn't get cast that year, but he was in my audition group. All right. And then I remember watching him. Actually, the interesting thing about Nobby was that he interviewed the same year as me, but neither of us got on, but then he got picked the next year. Right. Anyway, no one cares about this, but getting back to, (laughs) they really don't. It Um, sounds like you do. It sounds like I do. (laughs) You remember him well. I do. I remember all of them because- this is the embarrassing thing about me. I had to come back two more years. Yeah, yeah. I kept you knocking on the door. You know how much I wrote down and planned this. I kept knocking on that door for years and everyone knows about it. But um, we're well, getting back to my point though, and that is that that is the interesting thing about the human dichotomy or whatever that word is, and that is that people do have a real strong disconnect between who they think they are and how other people are perceiving how, how they really are and that's the truth that gets brought out in reality television that's fascinating i mean reality television's now been done for so long that we've kind of started to lose our interest in it a little bit but the magic and the truth in it is those human moments that we can see uh it's almost like the psychology of who we are as people yeah. uh, evolve that's <clears throat> when reality television is amazing Un, sort of not no tricks just real people being real people and that interesting dynamic of people after the show saying, oh, I'm not that person. And you just want to say to them, no, mate, you are. We got footage. We got the footage. <laughs> yeah. We didn't edit it. That's who you are. And that's how, that's how much of a disconnect you really have between who you think you are and how other people perceive you. 
that's where reality television can be really fascinating. And it does kind of uh, sound like it would be the topic that you find interesting about that. Well, I've just realized we've gone this long, we've, and but this is all very relevant to the book, so it's fair <laughs> enough. We probably should mention the book at this yeah, point. Yeah, really should. Um, so do you want to say what the book is? Well, I've picked uh, Holding the Man, which is by Tim Conagrave. Uh, it was first published in 1995. Um, it's a book that explored homosexuality in the 70s, you know, so a little bit before my time, but certainly still in the zeitgeist of 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 uh, homosexuality being illegal and and really a time where people were scared of it, I guess. You know, people fear, I think there was still fear involved. It's certainly not where we are in the LGBTI community now. But look, it was set in Melbourne. Uh, it's a memoir which was written by Tim Conagrave about his love affair. He fell in love with a boy from his school, uh, John Callio, who then went to Xavier here in Melbourne. Yeah. So I... This is when it comes to reading, I have now worked out that I'm connected to reading real stories. I'm not that interested in reading fantasy. Like I'm not interested in reading science fiction or anything like that. I want to hear about someone who's real and I love books that when they get to that point of you feeling you shouldn't know it, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to know like as in, oh, this is, I feel like I'm listening in, you know, that they shouldn't have revealed this because the truth is quite harsh. But look, I so was basically just the book version of uh, reality TV. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> you can now see the theme. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you. You are my psychologist. How much do I owe you? Um, the interesting thing about this was that I didn't come out until 2001 and one of my best friends gave me this book to read uh, and I'd, I was really fresh about my sexuality. Like I had told her after many beers on the balcony I told her that I was gay and then my birthday came up fairly soon after that and she gave me this book to read, Um, which I think the interesting thing about this book is it's sort of the first opportunity to identify with a piece of literature when you're a gay person. Like there was those no role models, like I was saying before, there was no one to look up to. This was a real opportunity to have a porthole into someone who was gay that I could identify with, Mm. which I think is the magic of this book. It was at a turning point in my life where I worked out my sexuality and it was this porthole to a real boy who lived in Melbourne and lived this life. And the interesting thing about Tim is that we have a lot of similarities, um, Tim Conagrave, and that is that we speak with a lot of authority and he spoke, he's passed away, you know, he passed away of HIV, um, but we sp- both speak with such authority about things without really understanding it. And I think that's who I am. He was political. I think that was what was really interesting about Tim was that, you know, he was he wanted to be knowledgeable. He wanted to sound like he was confident and he knew what he was talking about. And that's kind of me as well. Mm. But then this book really uh, resonated with me in a lot of ways. I am a self-sabotager. I am the biggest self-sabotage you'll ever meet in your life. Mm-hmm. Um you could literally tell me if I walked into that room over there and there's a million dollars, I would fall over before I got there because I'd make that happen. And that that's where this book kind of played an interesting role as well because Tim, at a time where HIV was unknown and this is, you know, before AIDS became, you know, such uh, a pandemic. Interestingly enough, reading this book about this person who I was so I found so many parallels to that he fell victim to uh, finding out that he had HIV was that I then should have read that book and my fear of that ever happening to me should have meant that I wasn't so promiscuous or wasn't so sexually active. I should have learned from this. I then am a self-sabotager. So in my 20s, I think I was really promiscuous. And the weird thing about that is it's like I my biggest fear was and my still my biggest fear is that I would get HIV in my life at some point. Mm-hmm. So you would think that I would have been really careful about that sort of stuff Mm -hmm. but I wasn't and then for my 20s this sounds ridiculous because I would get myself tested but I quite often would think oh my god imagine if I've got HIV and it crippled me I'd have no symptoms at one point uh interestingly enough I so strongly thought I hadn't that I started noticing symptoms that I'd read about um, and then when I got myself tested, I spoke to the doctor about it and the doctor was like, it's really common for you. Uh, your body is powerful. We're powerful people. We can convince ourselves and psychosomatic symptoms can appear. 
So I believed this so much that some of those symptoms I'd, I'd, I'd manifested. You thought your way into having symptoms for HIV. I did. But I'll also tell you something interesting, and that is that I, as a person as well, will my power of thinking about things, this sounds ridiculous. Anyway, the, my power of thinking things means I've manifested things in my life that I really shouldn't have. I told people that I was going to win Big Brother 10 years before I did. I literally told people, I've been cast, it's going to happen, and I and it happened. Now, the idea of being able to manifest something like that is insanity, right? Like as yeah. in there's a comedian, uh, Lawrence Mooney, who I don't know if you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I was out drinking one night with him and I told him, I said, you know, I'm going to be on Big Brother, I'm going to win it. And then when it happened, he uh, ended up doing like a conference with a friend of mine, Ed Pitts, who I mentioned earlier. He did like a seminar or something. And he Pitts was like, oh, yeah, you know my friend. And Lawrence Mooney was like, yeah, that guy told me he was going to win Big Brother. And he did. <laughs> like how would he know that 10 years prior? But, I mean, this is the sort of thing that happens to me is that my ability to, to self-sabotage is just as powerful as it is to materialise something. Uh, yeah. Okay. You really just sound like someone who's bipolar, who, who predicts a bunch of things, and sometimes it happens, and sometimes it doesn't. Do you and you're attaching most- some magical importance to it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One of the most upsetting things that I ever read about myself online that really cut me was someone wrote on a fan site, I worked with Bennett Village Cinemas in 2001. He told everyone he was going to be on Big Brother and how funny that it took him 10 years to make that lie a a reality. And that burnt me because I guess there was some truth in that, you know? Like I was like I'd auditioned for the second series Mm -hmm. and was in the process of it and in my own mind, this sounds ridiculous, but in my own mind I really thought I'd, I'd, I'd been cast on this show Years later, I realized after being on the show that the process was much longer and I wasn't almost cast on the show. I really wasn't. I was further away than I realized. But my arrogance as 21 was that I was telling people, I'm going to be on Big Brother. It's starting in three months. I'm going to be on that show. And I did get quite close, but they contacted me and said, we don't want you. Mm -hmm. And so the people that I worked with at the time that I was like saying, I'm going to be on Big Brother, this sounds, makes me sound like a crazy person. You know, they all must have for 10 years been like, that guy is the biggest liar. That guy is the biggest crazy person. Yeah, I'm sure they're all thinking about you. (laughs) There's another point. There's another point of how arrogant do I sound, right? But I think people are still sitting around having to think about it. Every day when they got together, the Ben Norris hate day. We need to get back to the book because I'm getting worse and worse. Like we mentioned this thing and then I've gone and taken you on this tangent, which... People are like, this guy's nuts. Anyway. <laughs> That's just hilarious. I'll have some tea while I think about that. <laughs> I bet they were talking about everything for 10 years. Uh, that's funny. Okay. All right. We can, go, we can talk about other stuff. So in terms of this book, because you are talking about uh, yeah. the, the enjoyment of seeing uh, – uh, so this story, you're like the the golden picture of exactly why I think it's interesting these books and people choose because yeah. sometimes it's because they reflect on it in general. But in your case, so it was just the right time as well. So reading it really helped you at that most confusing time to kind yeah, of figure really yourself out apart from giving any warning whatsoever to being responsible, <laughs> which is hilarious. Um did you is that something so you've have you gone back to it again and again over the years and stuff like that? I have a real love hate with the with the with the property I guess of that book and that is that um it transports me every time I reread it back to that. And I can think about it now that I'm 40 and I think about being 21 and I was really co- confused as an individual. So this book is almost like a time machine for me and I can go back. And like most books we have different relationships with the content when we read it at different points in our life. I remember reading a book at school that I had no idea what it was about compared to what it really was about when I read it as an adult, you know, so I think that's what actually can happen. 
the source material as well has been um, adapted to a play uh, and by Tom Ford. He made a beautiful play. It's been played around the world and it's great. It also then was made into a film where Ryan Core played um, Tim Conagrave. And the play and the movie I had a really strong relationship with, but it certainly didn't honour how I felt about that book. It still felt like a betrayal when they made those. They're beautiful tellings of that and that's these, uh, you know, these directors and screenwriters' interpretation. That's Mm -hmm. their interpretation. That's great. But my still, in my interpretation of that book is still worlds away from where they took it. And I guess the, the thing that stayed with me was Tim was so honest about his flaws and I love flawed people. Like I really love it. Like, if you introduce me to someone and they're too perfect, I just I switch off. If you introduce me to someone that is kind of almost horrible because they're so flawed, yeah. I will be their best friend forever. Like I love that. Mm-hmm. And I think in the book he was so authentic and he was so real about things. It was just so powerful. He was just so powerful to me that he could be so honest through his writing about who he really was. And that, even some of the beauty in the way that he wrote about John Callio at school, you know, no one, everyone frowned upon being a homosexual, but yet his love for this other boy at school, like he talking about his eyelashes and the color of his hair and, and all of that to me was just so powerful that he could feel like that as a teenager, that he could understand his emotions and his love for this other boy at school, that I certainly couldn't do that. Was there an element of feeling like you'd missed out a little bit, feeling not having those experiences? I don't know. I must have thought that at the time, but I don't think I thought about it as much as I do now. And I think, oh, wouldn't it have been so good to fall in love at school like that my straight friends did, you know? Yeah, yeah. To have that first relationship, you know, to hold their hand or to kiss them behind the portable or all of these sorts of things. But the truth is not that for me. I mean, I didn't know... I didn't know my sexuality at all. So, like, I didn't really miss out on anything because I was, wasn't interested in doing that with women either, mm. you know. But, you know, I think that's why I liked Dawson's Creek and all these other shows well into my 20s whilst everyone realised that, that sh- those shows were really for teenagers. <laughs> but that's because I was living my Dawson's Creek in my 20s. Like, I was only starting to hold boys' hands and and uh, fall in love and do all of these scary things that you do when you fall in love with someone that was resonating with those sorts of shows like Dawson's Creek. Mm. I was 10 years behind. The yeah. second uh, guest in a row I've had who <laughs> came late to the party in certain things because yeah, I had right. Alison and she was talking about the same stuff about like- Well, late- she's a really good friend of mine. Yeah. Every time I speak to her, we were on the phone yesterday, like it's supposed to be like a, a two-minute chat. I think yesterday was like 35 minutes. You know, for a quick chat, that's a lot. And yeah, I love Liz. I think that she's one of the most untapped- talents in this country i think she's so funny and the best thing about her is that she's flawed as well like she's a really flawed person she makes mistakes and sounds like all your friends should be a little bit insulted right now yeah there none of them would listen to this just because i'm on a show doesn't mean they have to watch it i mean i'd love for them to have watched it you know the narcissism that's in all of us wants to hear what people have to say but no most of my friends don't I'll be like, did you listen to that podcast I did? No. I'll share it on my Facebook. Be like, eh. Yeah, after a while, it's it's, no. it's a bit rich to keep coming back and asking. It's like, mate, you've been around for 10 years. Like, I'm not going to listen to everything you do. Like, they don't do that. And it, I, I don't know why, but it's never really bothered me. Like I'd prefer people to be honest. Sometimes people be like, oh, I watched you on, you know, You Can't Ask That or Husey, We've Got a Problem or one of these shows that it's it never means as much. This is what pe- entertainers need to realise is that it never means as much to others as it means to you. So, like, for me, as long as I can understand that and I can enjoy it, like, my friends still make fun of the fact that I get drunk and watch Big Brother episodes, which you should never tell people. As people, in old I, episodes? I, or no, like I, watch my, I watch them all. I watch the previous seasons before me, the ones after me. I rewatch watch Well, you that watch show. them now. Yeah. And people are like, are you crazy? They're like, and there's this running joke as well with my friends that, you know, at one o'clock in the morning on a Friday or Saturday night, every week they say, which is just not true, that you hear Sonia Kruger say, the winner. And it's because I'm drunk and rewatching myself win the show. And they're like. <laughs> it's every third week. Okay? <laughs> it's every day. It's not Friday. <laughs> no. Well, I'm, we're on podcasts. You can't hear it anywhere else. No, but it, you're not allowed to tell people this stuff. You know what I mean? Like as in it's, we're not allowed to own that. You mean, you meet, like I'm sure Nobby will say that to you or I'm sure former housemates will say that. 
I've never watched my series. What a load of bullshit, mate, because you've watched it. Like there's no one in this world who wouldn't rewatch that sort of stuff because it's frowned upon that you shouldn't say that you watch it. We tell people we don't. There's people that will have watched whatever reality show, whether it's Married at First Sight or whatever show they've done, They'll have watched it once is what I'm saying. Oh, right, once, yeah. Well, Me, see. I'm at the – this is like the fluidity. We're, we're back here again. There's a scale and I'm at the crazy scale that will rewatch it because it was a really important part of my life. It was a moment that, you know, we never get to see a montage of the best parts of what we did for the last three months in a 30-second package that – or we never get to hear our friends make a video where they talk about the best things about you. So, I mean, of course at certain parts – when you're feeling low, yeah, yeah, and I go, I'm really high, low person. I can be really low and I can be really high. So how bad is it really that if I need to pick myself up, I can go back and watch that? I can watch me being Australia's chosen housemate. Well, t- it's a nice little boost, yeah. Tully Smythe said that to me as well. Like I remember she did the show. She's an influencer now and probably more well-known for influencing than Big Brother. But she says, you know, every now and again she'll feel really down. And we have some similarities, I think, with our highs and lows. She'll watch the package that they cut for her when she left the show, which was really positive. And then she said, is this bad that I do this? And I'm like, no. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. And it's like, it's like, I don't know about the people, a lot of people have a bad time on it with certain reality shows I've heard about, but uh, then other people have a great time. So it might be actually just, again, triggering you just like reading the book and taking you back to that time. This just takes you back to that time of excitement and nerves and all that. And that is true. That's that's a part of my personality. I am very much transported to the first time I meet someone or the first, you know, or the time I read that book. Don't you have that with reading? Like you'll go back and read a book that you read like, you know, 20 years ago and you'll and then you'll feel all of those. It doesn't take you back like that. Um, a little bit, but not as much as I think other people. I've got a, my, I've got a really bad memory. <laughs> so, ah, so every it, time you reread a book, it's like the first time. I remember the book and I might remember thoughts I had about the book, but I can't actually really remember was I 12 or 25 or like, huh. I can't remember any of the setting, if you know what I mean. So I would have had this, like, and obviously I'll remember that I was like maybe a lot younger, but generally over a 10 year period, I would not know when in that 10 years I read the book. So that doesn't come in as much. You know what I mean? So I'll remember I what I thought, but I don't remember situation. I can read holding the man and I can smell the, the flower, like the flowers of, I can smell that springtime of living in Turek in Melbourne. I can smell, I can taste like, the simple foods that you cook when you're in your early 20s. Like, you know, I can smell the onion and the garlic cooking when you're making, you know, spaghetti. Yeah. Like I literally can be transported to to like weird things like That's that. That's awesome. Yeah. I am jealous of that ability yeah. a little bit. And that's why, I, more. do yeah. you know what? There's some books that I have have read at such darker times of my life that I've thrown them away. Like as in I know that I'm a self-sabotager, which means that if I leave that book in my house, I'll probably go back and reread it. And then it'll transport me back to something that I don't want to go back to. So then I'll actually tangibly throw these book away. Right. So you actually think like you won't be able to. I'm like, I can't go back to that. No. I so really like, like during a period yeah. where you were down, you might have read something. And even though maybe the book itself isn't it was necessarily. Brilliant. Yeah. It was probably really happy. You know, I, it was probably, you know, it's probably not classified as a downtime book. You know, it's mm. probably uplifting. You couldn't think there would be some, maybe some sort of a catharsis in going back and revisiting that moment from a stronger position? Mm, I think when, like, I've had amazing things happen in my life, but I've also had really catastrophic things happen. So <clears throat> not something that I talk, to, talk about that freely, but, you know, my father killed himself in 2006, and then after that happened, I really suffered depression badly for four years. Um, but I existed in that time, if that makes any sense. Like I still lived, I've still read books and got up and wiggled my toes, boiled an egg and tried to get on with my life. But those books that I read during sort of 2006 to really, I'd say four years after that, um, yeah, I threw out all those books. Really? And those clothes. Like I just didn't want to go oh, back wow. to- Oh, wow. So the, all of it, yeah. just like a, okay. And I've kept some small things that are really important to me, but- a majority of all of that, I mean, for depression, and this is what I say to people as well, it's sometimes important to talk about what you go through because when you are depressed, you never think you're going to come out of it. Like no one's sitting there going, well, I guess I'm depressed for the next six months. You know, like the end date for your own depression. And I had 
I have to be really careful when I talk about this because I had situational depression. You know, my depression came from the loss of my father. You know, I didn't have a mental, it wasn't, it wasn't a chemical imbalance. Yep. But I certainly don't want to go back. It's not cathartic to me. It's not cathartic. There's nothing fun about it. I can't go back to those, that time that took me a really long time to get out of. Uh, and I was really lucky to have some powerful friends and powerful, uh, yeah, powerful friends that um, helped me out of that. They drew me out of it. Like I stopped drinking. I stopped going out as much. My really good male friend of mine took me to the gym after work. You know, like they really worked on getting me out of this. All right. So it was a very sustained and conscious mm. effort to try to pull you out of that place. So you can imagine that I don't want to go back. You know, I can't go back to that. Yeah, you know. no, I, I was, oh, yeah, I wasn't aware of it. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 that you're totally. like, oh, my God, I didn't. You're like, before this started, you said, well, I haven't done that much research on you. I don't really know. And then someone tells you something like that. I I'm guess like, oh, it's quite, Well, uh, no, I mean, like, it's fair. It's interesting when you talk about that and, like, I don't know how much you want to talk about that or whether it's something. No, it's available you know. to me. Like, um, then I, and that's another interesting thing was when I auditioned for Big Brother the 100th time and got picked, I was very much ready for the first time and I said this a lot on the show to people, if you've got something that's really hard and it's available to you and you feel like you can talk about it, then that's magic to other people. Like as in I finally was ready to talk about dad's suicide. I was finally ready to talk about that darker po point of my life and that was that's a really powerful thing. So like even to this day sometimes people be like, oh, I don't want to talk about Graham, who's my father. And... I can still talk about it. I mean, it's obviously, it's not as easy as talking about what happened on Grey's Anatomy or something the other day. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's- A winning big brother. Yeah. <laughs> what it was like Let's talk night. about that every day. <laughs> you, let's go. Have you got a TV? I've got it on a USB stick. Let's rewatch. I'll just send you the link. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like as in, I still think that there is some power in being able to share your story. And I think if anything, if we all, you know, if we had like a little quote- that sums us up or the mantra that we live by, that is me. Share your story. I think it's important to share your story. Well, yeah. Well, it sounds like you've, you've saw the benefit of it yourself by saying you didn't have role models who were sharing that story yeah. with you when you were younger. And I'd love like for someone book. to be as idiotic as me on television when I was a teenager. Like, or I'd love to have had anybody accessible to me that made me feel normal. And we all want to feel normal. And like, I can honestly tell you some of the most emotional things that has ever happened to me is the feedback that I've gotten back from people, you know, that I've never met. Like I did, uh, I think it was Kyle and Jackie O with mum straight after Big Brother and this woman rang up and said that, you know, she was scared watching a PG Big Brother, which it was, you know, in 2012 with her children who were under the age of eight. She was like, oh, God, this guy's so gay and these kids are going to ask me and I don't even know what to say and, it was a problem for her and she said that she was cooking dinner after the show had finished and her son said, Mum, you know, Ben Ma Ben is going to get married to another man? Like what is that about? And um, she said, oh, that's about love. He, he's in love with a man. He's not in love with uh, a woman like your dad is, you know. And then the child said, you know, can we have carrots for dinner? Because it meant nothing, mm. you know. It meant nothing. Younger generation, eh? Yeah, they're in a different world and yeah. that's so powerful. Yeah, so it's just all of all the older generations are talking about how cooked they are. The younger generation's like, we're <laughs> fine, man. We've got bigger problems. Yeah, we don't get, get us a job. <laughs> they, but yeah, this is the di this is the difference like between these different worlds. I mean, that's what I sometimes think. I think wouldn't it be fascinating to go be this person, this chemical makeup of ourselves in a different like in a different time yeah. and see what influences or what things would change you in a different way if I didn't, if I hadn't been so paranoid about my sex and gender as to how people identified me or been worried about HIV and all these things that was from a really different time, what, where would I be? Well, it doesn't sound like you worried that much about the HIV thing. <laughs> it was a problem. Yes. Just I, in your head, you're like, I could have just not cared. <laughs> it wouldn't have changed my behavior. No, I could have been more sensible because I think my I, – I still – look, we could do this podcast in 10 years and, and hopefully – I mean, we don't ever work stuff out, but I hopefully would love to know later in life why my self-sabotage exists, like why I would bring myself to the point of possibly getting infected. You know what I mean? Like or 
why I could possibly self-sabotage, you know, a next job. Well, see, to throw why? it out there. Okay, okay. here we go. Um, I think you do overthink quite a bit. <laughs> Even though you're like, I like to live in the moment, maybe in certain settings, maybe when you're performing, you can let go. Sounds like the rest of the time you do maybe, and maybe as a habit of that, you've just like really- It's a problem. Well, you, you've drilled down into creating a narrative where like you're self-sabotaging or you're manifesting when really you're just thinking a bunch of shit and sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. But how do I relax and understand that? Like how do I exist with being able to, you know, how do I get to the point where I let it go? Well, the funny thing about that, if I was going to say, is that both of those narratives that you have, which sound opposite, they both let you be the one in control. <laughs> How much are you again? So to <laughs> the book a bit. We've, look, this is probably the least the show's ever talked about the book, but at the same time, we've talked about it kind of subtextually the whole time. So uh, from, from my, I only did a quick analysis of the book, so I didn't get to see too far into it. But it's essentially as a memoir, it's quite honest about his own experience and about his love for his partner, which he had from when he was in high school, Yeah, um, all the way through their lives until first he died and then- No, they, his partner died yeah, first. His partner died, sorry, yeah. First his partner died, then he died. So it's like a- he really? died just before the book was published as yeah. well. So it's a brutally tragic story in that sense. And he was really like, as in the interesting thing about Tim Conagrave was that he found this person who obviously he connected with in a profound way, but then he left his partner to be promiscuous, to be, to be like, oh, I can't have you be my partner for the rest of my life. I'm going to go and sleep around. And so, you know, there's some real heartbreak with amongst his own you know, ability to be flawed and just to be really reckless with his life. And, you know, he was really reckless. But, I mean, he was also really aspirational as well because he got into NIDA. You know, no one gets into NIDA as an actor, the National Institute of Dramatic Art. You know, anyone who wants to be an actor applies for that if you live in Australia and the acceptance rate is really low. Um, but he got in, you know, and he was very talented as a writer, as an actor, um, you know, like, and that was really interesting to for him to sort of, he kind of downplays that as well in the book. You know, he doesn't really talk that up. Talk about yourself more. <laughs> yeah. But I think it was, he wrote this book while he was at the end of his life and he wanted to write a book. And at the time, the friends that he had were all writing. And it was like, oh, sure, we're all writing a book. Like, you know, that was a quite common thing for his friends to say. But he wrote a book at a time when he was uh, dying of, of HIV and um, and that honesty and that real struggle with what was going on with him, I think, was able to be a confluence of everything that had happened in his life to be able to spew that out and be really as as honest and as probably as toxic as this disease that he was dying from. And I guess, know? like, so he actually knew. Did he know when he was yeah, writing yeah. that he probably didn't have long? He didn't have long, no. He so finished like, this book. He sent this manuscript out to a friend of his and by the time the book was published, he was he was gone. So that probably aided in his uh, utter lack of care in terms of being honest, brutally honest about everything because he wasn't in it for- I'm not dying, but I, I know people that, are di that have died and I know that people who have probably understood their mor mortality um, and- their immortality or, you know, the, however you, like as in I, I think that what the mind goes through knowing that you're leaving this place is changes you in a way and allows you to be more honest. Mm. And I don't know if that's because you don't have to live by the consequences of telling your truth to people, but I think as you're leaving this universe um, slowly, I think you want to, I think you want to leave something important behind. And I think that he telling that story and having that released in 1995 about sex as a gay man and about discovering his sexuality, about getting this disease and about what it did to him, you know, was something important for him to leave behind. And wouldn't it be amazing if you could say to that person that that book, you know, in 2003 got entered into the Australian's top 30 books, sorry, top 100 books of all time, I think it was in 2003, you know, wouldn't it be amazing to think that this community, this LGBTI community, that this book had resonated and was so powerful. I mean, you can ask anyone who's from the LGBTI community and everyone knows the book Holding the Man. Right. Like it's just like, and that's not just 
the the G of the LGBTI. You know, I've got lesbian friends that as well have read this book and that got something out of it as well. It just speaks to uh, experience. Yeah. It speaks to like the underdog, I think, as well. Like yeah. it's, and a parents and proper love story. And a love story that was real, which, you know, is not the Romeo. Like, it is the Romeo and Juliet, you know? Yeah. It is the real, like, that story is so like the Romeo and Juliet because it was forbidden love and they went against the odds and they both died around the same time. Like, they, you know, it's a real, it's a real story arc that, you know, we're very familiar with. And uh, I guess uh, before we tie up, I should mention, so you've been in a committed relationship now for- yeah. A million years. Ten years. <laughs> Ten years. Do you know in gay years, that's a hundred. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> sounds like you, you – you, so so that's – so actually, if I'm going to do my math correctly, that sounds like about the same time that you think you came out of the state you were in after your dad's uh, – Yeah, I think my partner saved me, to be honest. I think I was ready. I think I, I had I – had, I'd taken a peek out of the the scared, nauseated – frustrated land that I'd been in for four years as I met him. I think I just peaked out enough to be ready to be in a relationship. Was those dark years kind of promiscuous as well? As well? Oh, it? yeah. More so at the start, but then as I came out of it, you know, less and less, you know what I mean? Like as in I, as I said, when I met Ben, I really got to this point. Mind you, when I met him, I was dating three other men at the same time and <laughs> you, was just a complete slut. You slut. Or, yeah. <laughs> I'd been down on everything but the Titanic. And I had... <laughs> was like, you know, but I was ready and I met Ben and I never forget this and I say this to people who have found the great loves of their life and that is I just remember very early on I just I've, I just felt chemically, intrinsically connected to this man and I knew that I would be with him forever. Mm. And so like it's a rare thing and I was so fortunate to have had that but then he's so organised and so helpful and supportive and and all of these things that, I, I think I needed, and he really has. Without him, I would be I'd be lost. I think my fortieth birthday, my two best friends made fun of me. They said Ben's ability to allow his partner to do everything for him, and you know, Ben does a lot for me, and I should be really grateful of that. But obviously, I bring something to the relationship as well. Yeah, you know, uh, sound to the quiet places of the day. He was so thankful. Can you only imagine stage four lockdown Melbourne is that he is like, you, this is work. Oh, you can go to that man's house. He is loving it. He'll be he'll be working, but he will be doing the best work of his day because he gets some. He can breathe. Yeah, yeah I yeah. try every day because I, I record this show, the Ben Robin Robbo show four mm. times a week and whatever drama has gone on, I drag it into him. And I don't know how he manages to be as successful as he is. He's yeah. very good at what he does. You're trying your best. He has to, yeah, I'm trying <laughs> he to distract. He keeps having this other life and I hate it. I come in and I, I, I can now recognize it. I'll come in and I'll start telling him about something that I think is horrific, the big drama of the day, and he's just like, you know, this is scripted. No. I've seen this before. This story is old, mate. Uh, I'll look like I'm listening. Thank you. Yeah. And, yeah, he's, and he's on. He's Pro- on his way to look after himself. Yeah, right. So. Actually, that's a really good point to make is that's probably the, the way in which we have been able to survive is that he can switch off from my crazy. I think mm. that's important. Like he doesn't get sunk by it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like uh, from my, again, quick scan of the book, you're the Tim in the story and he's the yeah. other guy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, and say that again. <laughs> you're like, I'm the one who wrote the story. I'm the lead. Well. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Do you know what? It's this is, comes back to the narcissism. You know, when people sit around and they're like, "Who are you in Sex and City?" I'm like, oh, "I'm Carrie Bradshaw." People are like, "Have you rewatched that show?" She's the most narcissistic character that's ever been written. But I guess in my mind, I probably do relate more to the protagonist in a story, and that's the narcissism coming out again. It's <laughs> hilarious. And isn't it isn't it crazy that I admit this stuff? Isn't it weird? Yeah, I think in general I just relate to the protagonist. Yeah, I always think I'm the main person and he's, you know. And this book's about this person. I really relate to that. Yeah, like I I didn't realise how crazy that sounds. But like it's true though. But I think, yeah, that I think that has a lot to do with who I think I am in the in the universe. As I think I I think my dad said to me before he passed away, he said, Do you think that there's something really special about you, like as in special compared to other people. And I was like, yeah, I kind of do. I mean, I don't want to tell anyone that, but I, I kind of do. And he said, that's how I felt. Well, that's how I feel. 
And so I probably picked up a bit of narcissism from my dad. Right. That's a yeah. that's an interesting memory to have to look. <laughs> I back got lots of them from him, he... but I'll tell them to my psychologist. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, I, was, I was very lucky. To, anyway, I was very lucky to have him as my dad because he was a really unusual person. See, now I'm shattered. We have to. <laughs> we can't keep going like, forever. Yeah, so, anyway, are you going to read holding the man? I might, oh, look, I've got a long list of to read. Um, <laughs> I can add it to it definitely because I do. I one of my issues is I haven't read enough um, Australian literature in general. Um, so I really need to lift my game on that front. Yeah. There's a lot of big Australian books that I haven't read. And if this one's on the top 100, it sounds like it's very well. It's in the top 100. I mean, that was in 2003. I mean, I don't know if it's been bumped out or it's further down the list, but I'm, I'm going to send you the book as a thank you and you can just keep it there until you, until the time is ready. But I'm telling you, the reason why I picked it is because it changed my life. And I think that's, that's why I love reading. I love those books that make an impact on you. Mm. Okay. Well, um, I guess on that note, we should probably. Up. The last thing I'll say before we go, I ask everyone this question at the end of the show. Do you feel like you've learned any new connections between yourself and holding the man throughout this conversation? Yeah, I do actually. I think that um, agreeing to do this podcast, agreeing to talk about this book and reconnecting to that book again is is about being, you know, in 2020 and thinking about what that book means to me mm. and that that evolves. Yeah, and it makes me think about that person when I read it when I was twenty-one, and things have changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. ish. But no, yeah. well, thank you very much for being on the show. You've Book-ish. been a lot of fun. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And it's yeah, probably more serious than it needed to be. You're like, uh, you know, most people think of me as being quite funny, and I don't think it was funny at all. I think at <laughs> one point you were like, "Oh dear, this has gone <laughs> to the bad place." <laughs> thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I'll send you the book. Don't enjoy the read. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at Sans Pants Radio, then why not subscribe to sanspantsplus.com? For as little as $5 a month, you could have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's sanspantsplus.com.